welcome everybody to the fifth episode of the Dreamer Diary podcast. This is Chris coming to you again from uh, 2022, and today's episode should be fun. Uh, I'm actually really excited about this episode. It's a little break from the previous episodes where I'm just talking about myself. Uh, I reached out to a friend of mine who is a really in- inspirational figure. I've known for many years, and the more that I get to see his life develop, I see just how much of a of of uh, a future leader this guy will be, especially in, in the community that uh, that he resides in. And more importantly than not, I think what really stands out to me is is his story. And so I, I've asked him to join me on today's podcast, and I'll just kind of let him introduce himself. Um, you can't see it, but I'm blushing right now. <laughs> <laughs> you think so highly of me, man, but my name is Joaquin Setina uh, Huesca. I was born in Veracruz, Mexico. And I moved here to the United States when I was 12 years old to Utah. Um, I'm currently a third-year medical student at the University of Utah School of Medicine. And uh, yeah, that's. I'm married to my beautiful wife. She's from Peru, and we're just trying to make it work. Nice, nice. Well, and uh, and and you know, one of the cool things is you know we do share the same experience of being. Uh, from Mexico, living in the United States. And another really interesting thing about Joaquin is we share a lot of similar parallels in terms of our background. Um, If I remember right, Joaquin served a Latter-day Saint mission like I did. Um, You had a unique experience like I did. And so, you know, there's a lot of parallels. And so I think when you and I first connected, which I think we had met, what was it, three, four years ago, maybe five, something like that. And I think when we had met, we we were attending a conference where I think we were panelists if i recall kind of i don't know do you remember um i think i think it was a didn't you say it was like a you dream panel thing where we kind of just answered questions is that right yeah i think it was something along those lines i mean if i remember right one of the things that we were asked to do is just kind of share our story of being undocumented being a dreamer going through the educational system in, in Utah and what were some of our obstacles and barriers. And I think, you know, going to just going to school in Utah where you have a really eclectic mix of people who support the undocumented community and then you have people who don't support the undocumented community. There's this kind of really unique balance of those that support and those that are against. I know that when we were asked to speak, there was definitely more supporters of the undocumented movement, supporting immigrant rights and stuff like that than the antagonist, I guess you could say. But yeah, for sure. I think one of the first questions that I wanted to ask you was, so how old were you when you came to the United States? I was 12 years old. I was 11, turning 12, out of elementary school in Mexico and... Um, my mom came over first to kind of work a little bit and um, make some money and save some money to bring me over. Uh, my, my aunt actually brought me over and uh, we came over with a visa, the tourist visa. And then six months later, man, and we, we changed that status Yeah. <laughs> to no status. <laughs> no, and it happens so quickly. And sometimes you don't even know. Like there's a lot of people that I've spoken to where they're like, yeah, we came legally, and then we just we didn't we didn't know when our expiration date was, and then or or when they had to go back home, and then they overstayed, and they're like, well, if we go back, we probably won't be able to get a visa to come back, so we'll just stay here. So I know that happens quite a bit. Oh, oh yeah, but we, <laughs> I, just, I started I started school, like yeah, junior high, you know, 
Oh. So, no. did you know English? Like, what was learning oh, English I, like for you? I did a little bit. I, I went to um, a school in Mexico that taught English and stuff. But, I mean, obviously, you know, not, not fluent enough. Um, yeah. But, uh, funny enough, I had, you know, learned science and math, and those are the same wherever you go. So, I did well in school and when it comes to those. And, and then I was in an ESL class when I came in. And they, <laughs> I remember, it was funny because when I got enrolled, I was assigned the other new kids that were coming in from Mexico to kind of help them, help them transition as I was transitioning myself. <laughs> and yeah, and, and that's they, funny. It's funny. Yeah, I mean, I was doing my math just fine and and doing okay in school. And and then some of the kids that were coming in that were struggling, they were kind of expecting me to do their homework too, you know. And I was like, no, nah, man, like I'm just trying to help you out, but. but <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So it was funny because I, I mean, I didn't, I had just come to, like, I wasn't, it, it appeared to be that I was doing better because I was okay in school, but no, man, I was struggling too. But the counselor or somebody in the, in the school from Uruguay, and she, she was, a, she was a great help just because I remember her empower, empowering me a little bit, but that was like my first experience. And, and I mean, it's been 20 years this year and I still remember her. So people that empower you kind of leave a mark, you know? Yeah. Let me ask you this question. So when you got placed in ESL classes, was that because your parents requested or did the school just automatically assign you to ESL classes? Oh, no. It was skin, man. I mean, yeah. saw me and, oh, you got to go to ESL. You're yeah. not from here. You know, it's, it's, um, it's funny that you say that because the reason I ask is because so... In Utah, you obviously have a lot of like Hispanic, Mexican people, you know, there's a lot of people from all over the place, but there's also people who never migrated, right? And they still have these old school last names like Lopez and I'll use, I'll use um, somebody that I know and their personal experience, which was their last name is Lopez. They're like six generations, uh, you know, deep in the US. So they're not migrants by any means. But yet because of the color of their skin and their last name being Lopez, the kids were automatically placed in ESL classes because their last name was Lopez. Right. And they don't even speak Spanish. And so it's like, what's going on there, you know? And so it's really interesting too, because I had an experience and, and, you know, I think I've shared in, previous podcast and I and and my story is you know I came when I was six months old so I was pretty much raised here but my experience was I was in middle no I was in elementary school actually yeah so when I was in elementary school I was placed in ESL classes and what was really funny was my school was predominantly Hispanic first off and whenever like a parent that didn't speak English showed up to this to like the um, front office for whatever they would ask me to go and interpret for them. And yet I was placed in ESL classes. So I never understood that logic. I'm like, how are you saying that I don't speak English well enough to be in regular classes? So you're putting me in ESL and then you're asking me to be the interpreter? Or the... <laughs> you're, probably, you're probably doing your dad's taxes and stuff. Like your parents' taxes. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. No, I knew how to do my taxes when I was like 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I feel you. I, I think it's, uh, I, I was from, I, I lived in an area in Utah, predominantly non-Hispanic. Definitely, and, and it sounds like it's just a system, right? Yeah. It's kind of set up. Oh, for sure. So let me ask you this question. Did you always know that you were undocumented, or was there like a moment in your life where you're like, whoa, like this this really hit me, like this this is my future? Um, My mom kept it real, for sure. Like, you know, she kept it real. She, she told me how things were going to – well, I, I don't think she knew what it meant until I um, was get, getting ready to go to college. I think that's when it hit everybody. 
like like in what way what's that like in what way do you, do you mean oh well um i i went to i started college before 2012 with daca and, and before we were kind of outed by the media um i had to go in there i, I actually had a scholarship to go in but the the way it's set up in utah you have uh, the hb 177 i think 144 144 is that what it is i think it's 144 yeah yeah 144 and uh you know, if you went to school here, you can get in-state tuition, but they have to, at least at the university that I went to, Weber State University, they had to, what is it, uh, waive your tuition, kind of, so you don't get, you get in-state tuition. So when I went in yeah. there, they, I, I had to either choose to get in-state tuition and not get the scholarship, or get the scholarship, but not get in-state tuition, which mm. it ended up being better for my, you know, budget to just get in-state tuition and um, not get the scholarship. Wow. So, and, and I mean... Being a good student and stuff, that was kind of like the first time it hit me. And then enrolling, I had to be, I had to go into the registrar's office and say I'm undocumented, and they had a list of undocumented students, and really? I was in the list, you know. Yeah. So I, I, I was, I guess, marginalized, you know, from the get go, and I hadn't experienced that before in high school, or I mean, I was just a Mexican kid going to school, but now I was undocumented going to college. And that kind of was a, a difference. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think starting college was kind of when it hit how, how my how this was going to play out. And interestingly enough, you talk about ESL and how the automatic things like that. Um, even when I started medical school, I was automatically placed as an international student. No way. <laughs> yeah, and I was, I was they wanted to charge me out of state tuition, which I don't know if you're familiar with medical student tuition, but it's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's almost twice like what in-state tuition is. So... I had to fight that again, send my high school diploma, not my undergrad diploma, like my bachelor's undergrad diploma, my yeah. high school. I had to go back to my high school and get my records from there and send it to the medical school, prove that I've been here for 20 years and that I should get in-state tuition. No way. So that was, an, yeah, that was, you know, three years ago. So That's insane. So there's so many different ways to kind of dive deeper in that. But the one question that stands out to me is how did, how were you able to stay motivated? Because I think one of the challenging things when you're a person without papers or you're a DACA person, you know, it's so easy to get sidetracked or to kind of lose hope of, of the bigger goal, right? So how are you able to kind of maintain vision when you're now being told, you know what, you're going to pay double what the medical the traditional medical school experience is going to be like what was going through your mind um, i think and maybe your listeners would will um relate it always comes down to family right and parents and mentors and people in your life that just kind of push you i remember another mentor of mine was my french teacher in in high school she was always she kind of saw the potential of being I mean, just being a good student and just being dedicated and I remember I was t I told her I wanted to be a mechanic, you know. I think Transformers had come out that year or something, and I wanted to <laughs> yeah. fix cars. I wanted to be a, a Transformers doctor, and, <laughs> and she, you know. And, and she said, you know, I, I feel like you have other stuff, people's person, and you like to study, and I think you'd be better fit. You'd be a better fit for a different career, and. I, when I was little, I wanted a position, but then I think during high school years, when I came here, or junior high and high school, there was an expectation from society, you know, a stereotype that, I, you know, I started dressing back with baggy clothes, and I started, like, getting into that cholo scene, you know, and, and, yep. and that was, but it was fine, because I was, I was, I was, a, I was, well, I never got 
jumped into a gang or anything. You know, I was too scared to do all that stuff. Yeah. But I always got like good grades. I was a good student. I, I was getting like um, outstanding stuff in school with my baggy clothes, and it just didn't add up, right? Because people were like, "Dude, you're like a cholo, and how are you getting all these good grades?" Like, like I remember, I remember. Um, I know I'm trying sidetracking a little bit, but. It, promise I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> no it's, question, it's good i remember people like in between classes like people usually that's when you, you would fight right you're like in stupid fights when you're a kid and or teenager yeah and yeah and i remember like one time I, I was gonna get in a fight or something i can't remember why I just and um i said hey man we're gonna fight it's gotta be in between classes because i have a math test coming up and i, <laughs> I can't get suspended because it's like three days and I, I you know i gotta miss school and, and then there's like trigonometry or something that we're learning and i can't you know like you gotta make sure it's after school or something like we gotta make it work so that i my grades are not impacted by by this fight you know yeah and they'd be like dude you're such a nerd and that would that would end the altercation that would be it because it'd be like you're not even worth it you know like, you're too much of a nerd so it, you know it, they're just not compatible with the lifestyle that i you know i thought i supposed to be in with with what i really wanted and you know who i really was and and so to answer your question how i stay motivated people in my life like again my college counselor she's colombian monica she's great too and, and my genetics professor Dr. Marshall just encouraged me and 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 say, hey man, you're going you're going the right way. And and when these girls started coming on, like like you mentioned, medical school and yeah. all all, all the stuff, man, like the MCAT and all these things, just people in my life that Melanie, people in my life that would just talk to me and empower me and 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 support me and keep just helping me out. And it took it took a village, man, to be honest. But but it was particular people. It wasn't the whole village. It was certain people in the village. I would also get a lot of discouragement from important people in the path of going to medical school like my medical school counselors who they was like yeah i don't know how it's going to work for you because you know i was the only daca in my undergrad university applying to medical school in utah you know there's i'm the only i'm the only daca in the four years of medical school and res right now well as far as i know who's daca at the school of medicine um i know there was one guy four years ago i think uh, he's, but he's now no longer DACA, but it, it was just, I was trying to open or start my own path and yeah. hopefully pave it for, for other people. Well, and I think that, I think your experience, I mean, honestly you talked about how, you know, you, you learned early on in life that you wanted to be a physician, that you like taking care of people. And obviously, you know, life kind of pulled you in different ways, but eventually you were still kind of on the path that took you to where you are today. So I kind of wanted to touch on that a little bit and ask the question, like, what was your process for getting into medical school and how are you able to get in when oftentimes dreamers, for example, get discouraged by the challenges of just getting into medical school? I mean, the MCATs for anybody, despite having papers or no papers, is is hard. And so I what was your experience like? So I um, so I started my, uh, 2008, started college. And then I did a year, and then I did my my religious mission for two years, and I came back, and I I was working obviously under the table at a, the dry cleaners my mom was working at, you know. I worked there for since I was 16. One of my mission came back, worked there still for five years total, and then uh, so 2012 DACA appeared, yep. and um, we went to a lawyer, and it took a year for me to get my DACA <clears> because he had put that, that I was married on, on like oh, just a bunch no. of yeah he messed up my application and we paid my he my mom got like half of it back but it was just interesting how he, we even got screwed by a lawyer if you have if you have if you're alive you'll get screwed by a lawyer sometimes yeah 
fireworks, and that it's already happened for me, so I don't yeah. know if it doesn't happen again. My my previous episode to this one, I talked about how my family got screwed, so I totally get it. Yeah, it just, so it happens. It, yeah, it happens, and so that happened. So I didn't get a doctor until like 2013, and um, that opened up the the path for me because I needed a social security to apply to the program I wanted to, which is medical laboratory sciences. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's just, if you're not familiar with it, it's just basically all the people that do your lab work at the hospital and all the, any lab work, you know, it's a bachelor's. And so, but you have to, you have to get certified on a associate's level and then a bachelor's <clears> level. <throat> and then you need the social security and all that because it's medical. So then I was able to do that with DACA and, I was originally be a chemistry major, and then I switched to that. So in case medical school, it was a little hard to get into. I would have a job because it's a pretty good job. And so after I started doing, you know, I, I tutored for like, I quit the dry cleaners and I started tutoring for like 20 hours while going to school. And then I was a phlebotomist and was working, you know, about the same time, if not more, and going to school. And every year I would get the... <laughs> They call it a hope scholarship, which is your, your taxes back. That's kind of how it paid for and then scholarships. Yeah, uh, I would you know be involved in the community and just leadership within the within the university. I got married at 29 because I was I was I couldn't date before. I was just so busy and so scholarships and working part time and my taxes back and all that. And I was living at home with my parents. And it's funny because <laughs> I wanted to go to BYU. When I got home from my my religious mission, BYU University, and you mentioned, you know, how did how did you know, or when did you know about undocumented, or, well, my mom, you know, I came home and I'd be like, hey, mom, I want to go to BYU, and she said, okay, sure, you can go, whatever, but remember, you're undocumented, you got all these things, if you go to a university that's closer to home, you can live here, you can save, you can work, we can help you out, you can get through this. If you go out there. It might be a little more difficult for you. Yeah. So she didn't like she didn't stop me from going there. Or she didn't prevent me or anything. But she kept it she kept it real, and that helped because I realized you know like that that wouldn't be smart. That wouldn't be in my best interest. Maybe for other people, but not for me. And I know you know I know yeah. people, students that went to the U and and even the U was an option, but it, it was just I would have to like commute longer. It was just not. It didn't. It wouldn't work out for me. Yeah. So she kept it real. Kept going to. to Weber State is, and they actually they have a great program. What the, what I was studying, and when the MCAT, uh, MCAT time came, I um that you had the University of Utah had um, a program for non traditional or mar- I don't know marginalized students, where they it was like summer prep course, and I applied for it, and um, you give like a two month stipend and then a six week course, so I did that and really like a summer <clears throat> basically I started studying for. I just finished like some of my undergrad classes required for the MCAT, and then I studied for that summer. Took it at the end of the summer, and then went back to work in school, hoping that I didn't have to take it again. Yeah. Um. I my score was just a little bit above average, something amazing. Um. I I, sh- I didn't study as long as I should have, but uh, then when I graduated, I worked in the medical laboratory field for a year, as I was applying to medical school, and it was during about 2016. Not 16. 17, 18 when I applied, and uh, that was during the the last administration when they were like threatening to end DACA. It was just very like very unstable time for DACA, and yeah. I remember when there was a, a representative from a school in Chicago that came to talk to the to Weber State to the Dreamers or not to the Dreamers, sorry to the pre medical students. 
And one of their one of their pitch was or one of their yeah their pitch was that you know oh yeah we also take Dreamers we take DACA whatever, and then I I thought okay well I can just talk to her afterwards and, and see how they can help me, and when I went to talk to them afterwards she said oh like I don't think she expected anybody to actually any DACA to actually be in that room yeah because because when I went on and talked to her she said oh yeah well, this year is actually hard for DACA because we don't have a much uh, we don't have funding for for you guys this year because of what's going on with the uh, DACA and stuff and everything that we you know as you know we are we're not federally funded everything's yeah. out of pocket yeah so, well, so I, yeah we don't have a I was just going to say, I think that would be a good point to kind of just clarify, because this podcast reaches both the undocumented and uh, undocumented community. And and one of the things that's interesting, and I don't, and this is just from talking with people, is I think those who are citizens or documented, whatever, um, they forget that paying for school when you're undocumented, specifically with DACA, it's all out of pocket. Yeah. There's there's really no scholarships available to, at the same extent to uh, what's available for citizens and legal residents. You're, it's all coming out of your pocket. When I mentioned scholarships as an undergrad, um, they were private scholarships. They could right. only be private scholarships. And the donors had to be okay with it going to a dreamer. Because a lot of donors, the private, if they found out that the money was going to a dreamer, Sometimes they would they would pull back. They'd be like, "Oh no, right. no, no! I don't want it to go to Dreamer." And so, the administration, people like Monica, whom I told you about, they almost had to convince people that it for you know it'd be going to Dreamer and that's okay. So it wasn't just like they were taking those money. It had to be so people knew who it was going to, and they would, it had to be okay with that. So right. it, and it's still like that. Still, still like that. I'm being I. I've, I am being blessed with a scholarship right now at med school, and the donor knows me, and I have to actually have to go see him just to say hi. He's a ninety, <laughs> he's a ninety-four-year-old German doctor who is amazing person. But I hope he lives at least at least two more years when I graduate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we'll but we'll yeah, be rooting for him. <laughs> what's that? No, I just said we'll be rooting for him. Yeah, and I think I think he's ninety-something at the end of the day. I mean, he he lived through World War Two. I'm not to compare, obviously. I'm not gonna sure. bring that up now, but. I think at the end, at this point in his life, he just wants to help somebody, and and he knows my story, and he's told me like, hey, I know your story, and I, the way things are going, it actually, it it rings familiar to me, which is crazy that he said that, because again, he was a World War Two guy. Yeah. But he said that to me, you know, and and he said I want to help out, so. Uh, so I have, sorry, I have applied to med school the first year, applied to two schools, the U and that one in Chicago, and I did not get in. And then, so I was like freaking out because my MCAT was going to expire. The, that, that, the next year was would be my last year that I could apply with that score, and, you know, it wasn't that great, so I needed to, like, kind of hopefully, I, I didn't want to retake the MCAT. That was, it's a brutal test. So I was like almost tearing up. I was like, I want to do this again. So I applied again, but this time I applied to those two schools and eight more schools in California because not all medical schools are, are DACA friendly either. Um, a lot of them, some don't take Dreamers. Right. And luckily that you did, but it's the only medical school or MD program in Utah. And DO schools, if you're not familiar with the medical system, there are MDs and then there's DOs, Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine, and then there's medical doctors. And they're both physicians, but DO schools are 
private schools mostly. Um, and they are a little bit more expensive. Gotcha. But, uh, you know, if, if you're trying to get be a physician, you some you, it depends on what you want to do, but you mostly apply to both schools, DO and MD schools. But the U, uh, Utah saw, uh, only has an MD school and I think one DO school in St. George, Southern Utah. And I think they're opening up another one. But anyway, DACA or Dreamers are not um, – I don't think TO schools take dreamers. So that's like, another, you know, I can only apply to MD schools, which at times can be a little bit more um, com- challenging. Just just sometimes their, their requirements are a little bit more strict. So I had to apply to the, uh, MD school, and then I was shadowing a physician, and I was applying at that time, and I was a, this other doctor, um, I was trying to uh, ear, nose, and throat doctor, and he was. Um, it's like I think he's one of those guys that you just cross your path and, and helps you out, you know, the whole way. Like he he saw me. He's, uh-huh. he, it's funny because I went in there to shadow him. He sat me down, and I think he's like, "Oh, what's your name? Where are you from?" And then like the third question he asked me, he's like, "So what do you think about this Dreamers movement or DACA movement?" <laughs> Yeah, he seriously he asked me that, and I was like, "Oh, well, I'm actually DACA," and then he's like, "Yeah, I kind of figured." He said, "Interesting just from your story." Yeah, he could tell, and and, and he was like, I, "He's like, look, man, medicine, medicine is, has no boundaries, has no 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 borders. You you should this should never stop you. Like this, your status is doesn't make you a better or a worse person to be a physician or to be a doctor." And from that moment on he just like was just a huge support i mean just a huge support man and he looked over my personal statement and he kind of helped me out with that and it was just amazing to see like somebody who i'd never met before just kind of take interest in me and 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 push me in the right direction and help me so so the second time um the second year i I applied to like 10 schools or something. I don't know, eight in California, but California, they they take their own DACA students mostly unless the guy had to be like Einstein or something (laughs) amazing, but I had my own other life problems to not be, you know, a genius, I guess, excuses, but (laughs) my mom was, yeah, but, um, I applied to all those schools and I got waitlisted at the university of Utah and the person that helped me through the MCAT, that, that summer prep course, she worked for the U, for the School of Medicine. And it was funny because it was one of those divine intervention things where she looked over and she noticed that I, I was still, I was, oh, that's another thing. I was placed in an out-of-state wait list, uh, not into the in-state wait list. Interesting. Again, yeah. I've never lived outside of Utah. I've been here since I was 12, but I was still placed in out-of-state so she, so I had to send like an emergency email, which which I've never heard, because once they they tell you, hey, you're in a wait list, that's it, like you can't do anything to move yourself up or down or, or nothing, like you're just yeah. people, you know, you're. So um, I sent my again my high school diploma and my undergrad to some email that she's like, hey, you have to, like she texted me and said, send these two to this email now. So I sent these emails to these people, to this, or my documents to this email, and I never got a, like a response back. Like we got your documents, I never got. A, oh, okay, great. We'll switch you over to the in-state wait. Like nothing. Yeah. It was just like send it the email, and 
into the universe, basically. It's, it's in, it went into the black hole. Yeah, basically, I, I had no idea what that all was going to turn, like, how that was going to turn out. And then one day I was, I was working graves, uh, working like 8.30 to 7 at the, at the hospital in the clinic. Got home, was about to go to bed, and then I got the call. I admit, I, I got the, the call, and anyway, it was, it was a crazy day. I didn't know what I was getting into. Med school is really hard. But, yeah. Well, I mean, um, you, I think if you ask anybody who's going through that type of a program, uh, you have to be dedicated, first off. Because obviously there's the time commitment, right? I think it's, what, seven years or something? I mean, I, I, I never went through it myself. At least. Anymore. It's four years of med school and then three or four of residency, depending on what you want to do. Sometimes more. If you want to do, like, neurosurgery or something, it's, like, seven years of yeah. residency. So. I, I've heard that the more you go deeper into the medical field, especially once you specialize in something, it just gets even more crazier. And, you know, hats off to you for trying to pursue that. But you said something that was kind of really interesting. And I think I think the listeners to this podcast will find it really interesting to hear from you regarding your perspective being a DACA person going through this medical school experience. Obviously, you're going to have a different perspective uh, of, of what it means to kind of care for somebody as opposed to somebody who, you know, maybe didn't have that undocumented experience. Can you talk about what that's like? Being a med student, being a document uh, dreamer in medical school, it, it's funny because it's almost like you're, you are in a space that people don't expect you to be. And they talk about undocumented, they actually do talk about undocumented people in like lessons or lectures and stuff. And during clerkships and round, they, they talk about, oh, yeah, this person is undocumented and they probably don't have this and this and all this stuff that they believe, you know, there's the stereotypes for undocumented yeah. people. And you're in the room, right? You're listening and you're like, hey, like, I'm undocumented, right? You have no, people just don't know. Yeah, you stand so out. You're kind of like, <laughs> you're kind of the, the infiltrator, and, and which makes you feel like sometimes you're not supposed to be in that room. It makes you feel like you get the whole dude, the imposter syndrome with at least with me. I was just crazy. gonna say, yeah, because I yeah. think I think I know for myself, like going through my uh, graduate programs myself, like there were moments where I felt like, what am I doing here? You know, like this is that these my peers are, are, you know, their life experience is way different from mine. Like, what am I doing here? Like, should I just go home? And so I'm, I'm sure you probably felt like that in some cases. Yeah, dude, a lot of people are like, yeah, I'm, I, I came to the U because I like the mountains and I want to ski, like, on my days off. And I was like, I came to the U because that's the only option I had. You yeah. know, like, um, <laughs> yeah, people have just different options in life, I guess. But one thing that one of my coworkers used to say, Melissa, she's great. She would say, hey, because she's from, uh, she's African-American from um, somewhere in Illinois, I think. But she would say, hey, your name's Joaquin. His name is Chad or whatever. Like you are you, and he he's a different person. He's got a different road, and your name's Joaquin, and and you're not like if your name was Chad, maybe that'd be a different <laughs> story. But you got your own name, you got your own life, you got your own struggles, and you just gotta live what you know you've been given, the life you've been given, and that helped a lot too. Cause like I and now with my wife uh, from Peru, and she her story's a little interesting too. I uh, immigrated from Peru to Argentina and. She went into this school. Her dad's from the Middle East. And oh, wow. she was like, anyway, long story short. Yeah. What's that? No, I was just saying, yeah, that's super interesting. I'm, I'm, yeah, I would, yeah. I'm probably on another podcast. That would be something to kind of dive into because <laughs> that sounds like a really interesting experience. 
you know, having oh, family yeah, from the Middle East and then going to South America. And that experience is very different for many reasons. So that's awesome. <laughs> I'd love to oh, talk, yeah, touch on she, that at, at a later she, point. I mean, she's in Argentina. She, her dad wanted her to learn English, so she went to a um, – so he paid for like a like bilingual school, you know. But her life in, Ar <clears> in Argentina, she was an immigrant from Peru in Argentina. So she wasn't – like she went to school with like people – sons of ambassadors and 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 um gotcha. people from like the ambassador with the son of the ambassador from kuwait and the son of you know uh the, from korea and all, like a lot of people with a lot of money and a lot of prestige and for her it was her dad was in the middle east and he's just paying for this but her life like she was living a different lifestyle in argentina so she had that impost like big time imposter syndrome you know like yeah uh, she was there for the education, but the lifestyle was just completely different. So, anyway, she helped me out so much, man. Just coming home and just kind of bring me down to earth, and 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 she's a huge support. So um, that's another thing. Like I, I'm grateful for her just because she kind of helps me get through the day sometimes. And um, so you mentioned how is it? Um, at times it can be challenging. I had a recent experience where a resident was like, she's like, you can't you can't talk to. Like, I was in the hospital, I was in pediatrics, I, I think I want to do pediatrics, actually, and I was just talking to kids and, and the families, you know, and being, his, so it, there's a different thing being Hispanic in medicine, um, sorry, there, it's, it's different being Hispanic in medicine, and then there's also um, being from Mexico in medicine. Yeah, and, that's doctor, Because, like, I've worked, right now, I've worked, I had the, the blessing to work with a, a physician, that moved here when he was nine from Mexico, from Monterrey, and he's a pediatrician, and he's very, very good. He, you know, and he treats both English and Spanish, but he treats his patients in Spanish. He treats his patients in English. He's he's very um, competent in both languages. Very smart. And I have also worked with like Hispanic, like Mexican American physicians, people that grew up here. You know, like, right. and it's different because. Even the the ones that grew up here and yeah, they're Hispanic, they speak Spanish, but even the culture is different. And I go in the, in the into the room with a Spanish speaking or a Hispanic family. Even to be honest with you, even like immigrant families from Africa, from other countries, it doesn't really have to be um, Hispanic. But the experience is different because a lot of a lot of things I, I can relate to, you know. Yeah. And culture wise, I know where they're coming from. Like I know when they come in and, and they say I ask them, say, hey, has your has your daughter or son have had a fever? And they tell me things like, well, I mean, I felt his forehead and it was hot, you know, <laughs> like, and I was like, okay, so is that, you know, or, um, I don't know, just like, oh, did, did you take, uh, when, when's the last time that this happened? I was like, I don't know. When's the last time that we had my, my daughter's quince or something. And I was like, okay, when was that? Like, can you give me a date please? And not like, an event in your life because you know people like yeah. go uh, culturally we go by events you know and <laughs> yeah. things like that so I feel them I, I feel I, I understand where they're coming from because um, I my family still does certain things and um, but for example like there are times where the resident was like hey you can't speak to this patient you have to get an interpreter to speak to, Sp to Spanish patients the Spanish speaking patients and I was like what like because you're not because I tech like I wouldn't be a certified bilingual provider like I have to take this test and this thing is like look I go into the room and these are my, like my people 
Spanish is my first native language. What do you mean I can't speak to them? And I need to get an interpreter to say probably the same, like, and and I've been in the room when there's been an interpreter, and a lot of times they don't convey the same idea that I want to convey. And being a medical professional, and when I explain something, I want a certain thing to come out to, to, for them to understand, right? Yeah. And so when I, I say it in my language and I communicate, so there are those times where these people that they, it'll happen, man. People will, people will, a lot of times non-minorities will want to be the only saviors. Yeah. And, and although they advocate for, for Hispanics, whatever, like they want, they don't, the best way is to really advocate for representation. Yeah, and for leadership. Well, I think we're seeing that across all sorts of different industries. Uh, I know that there's a lot of dreamers aspiring to become lawyers and to try to get into the political spectrum of 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 a career, uh, and then you you run into representation in schools with teachers being you know DACA teachers and stuff like that. And and I think what you're talking about speaks to the experience that I think a lot of people are looking for, which is can somebody relate to me? Is this medical professional or is this lawyer, do they understand what I'm feeling? Do they understand why I think the certain way that I'm thinking? Like you talked about how, you know, you might come across a patient who, you know, they'll, they'll remember when they had their boo-boo and it was like two years ago at the Ginse, right? And it's like, culturally, we understand these things, but it's because we've also lived them in many ways. And I think the representation that you're talking about, I think is so important. And I think another part of that, and I think this also speaks to kind of what we're living in right now, which is the COVID-19 pandemic, right? When at, you know, at the start of the pandemic, we saw where essential workers, right? The people who are working the fields, the people who were working in, you know, all sorts of, you know, uh, jobs that required them to be in their place of employment, whatever it was, they didn't have that luxury to work from home. They didn't have that luxury of taking a week or two weeks or a month off because they got sick or their kids got sick. A lot of them had to just, you know, go to work and pretend like they're like they weren't sick. And unfortunately, many of them got sick. And I think this kind of speaks into or I guess kind of seeps into kind of the question that I have for you, which is like, how has COVID-19 impacted the way you're experiencing this medical school experience? Because I think Another part of that is, again, with the COVID pandemic, we're seeing the need for medical professionals. We're seeing the need for nurses, doctors, and stuff like that. So what is your, your, your perspective on that, and uh, can, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so the whole second year of medical school was all online. Like we, you know, It was all through Zoom and just sitting on my butt at home for eight hours studying. <laughs> Yeah, I know, really, man, and, and kind of finding your own schedule and, and trying to find structure to your life just because everybody was just a little crazy. You could kind of, And you needed to study because you needed to pass your tests and stuff. I, I, I got COVID um, November of 2020, and I was, like, studying and getting, had COVID. So long story short, uh, I got married to my wife. She's an international student, and I got a lot – that's another that's another topic for another day. Yeah, no, because like a lot of times you, people think their options are, you know, you can only marry a U.S. citizen, right? Because that would fix your life. And I had friends, close friends tell me, hey, man, like you know, the reason why you're not in med school or why you're struggling so much is because you haven't married an American or somebody with papers. 
and that's the only thing that's gonna get you in li- somewhere in life because you're always gonna have that stamp on your back that you're undocumented. <laughs> Not to yeah. <laughs> stamp on your back um, that you're undocumented, and and that's gonna like prevent you from all these opportunities. And so I I met her, fell in love. If I give anybody any advice, marry for love, not for papers. <laughs> um, no, seriously, man. Like, I, I, it, it'd be, it'd be a, a whole different story if I would come home and I was misunderstood. Like, I, nobody understood me at my house. You know? Yeah. It'd be a different story. Yeah. Yeah. And and so anyway, so so that was the story. And then my in-laws came over. My mother-in-law and my grandmother-in-law. They came to, for the wedding from Argentina, and then um, we got married on Leap Day on in t- in November, February 29, 2020. And then a week later, we uh, COVID happened. Everything oh, shut down. Man. Yeah, we we were able to go to Arizona for you know camped out and have a supai. I don't know if you heard of it in yep, Arizona yep. for honeymoon. And then we came back and COVID happened. Everything shut down. Everything went online, and my mother-in-law was stuck with. My parents, luckily at the time, their house was big enough for everybody, but we're stuck there. For, we're all living together. For, so I got to know my mother-in-law very well. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, it was For better or worse. <laughs> yeah. It, it was great because I, I wouldn't – otherwise, I, you know, she's in Argentina now. I don't see her often. So True. that was like yeah. our only opportunity to really bond. And yeah, that was important for my wife and important for me too. So anyway, we were um, – Stuck in my parents' home for three months, and we came to our apartment. And during that summer, my biological father passed away in Mexico. I kept in touch, but I wasn't too close. But still, man, like COVID and DACA, yeah. I couldn't go. Yeah. I couldn't do anything, right? Just everything was remote. Passed away. I don't know if he passed away from COVID. There wasn't a lot of information, but he passed away. And uh, and then that same year, um, the previous president, the uh, elect- um Oh my gosh, sorry, I'm... The yeah. administration, the previous administration was threatening to send all the international students home. I don't know if you remember that. Um, some schools, I think it was Harvard or some other schools, they they kind of advocated for the international students to start making like the, these uh, classes that could only be taken online for people. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I do remember yeah, that. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, so for like a week or so, they, if you were online, if you're an online student or if you were, which everybody was because COVID, right. then you'd have to go back home. You couldn't be in the, and so my wife was a national student and oh and, and then they were threatening to end DACA. So I was like, dude, like double whammy coming yeah. from both sides. Like my wife gonna get some home to our, to Peru and I'm gonna get some to Mexico. Like what's going on? I'm middle me- of medical school and she's she's going to school here too. Like what's wow. going on? So and then my father had passed away. It was rough, man. And then we had COVID. We all had COVID three days before my mother-in-law. So she stayed like 10 months. She kept, they kept canceling her flight. And three, you know, they needed that 72-hour COVID test before they could fly. Yep. And when they went and had it done, it tested positive. So we got, we came, she came home and we all had COVID for like an extra week. And so it was a rough year, 2020. And, uh, and on that note, I was um, learning about – Actually, at the time, I was learning about lungs and, and, and heart and all this stuff with COVID. And some, I think Salt Lake, somebody in the Salt Lake community reached out, and I was able to um, do a little bit of a Facebook Live education about COVID in Spanish. Um, 
and that happened. So I've been, I've been trying to educate people in the community about COVID. And, yeah. Um, so I feel like I, I've, I've been an advocate because the Hispanic population got hit pretty hard here in Utah compared to other groups, especially for those same reasons that you mentioned, you know, essential, essential workers, lack of yeah. information and yeah. all the WhatsApp videos from outside of the oh, US. Dude, there were so many. All this, what's that? No, I was just saying there were so many of those WhatsApp videos. Like oh, they were all gosh. over the place. I had patients come in and, and telling me that the magnetic skin stuff and the COVID vaccine and all this stuff. And I said, just, just tell your aunt to, <laughs> to hold on for a second. And, and yeah, like those Diaz, man, like they'll send all and then And, oh, and then on that, on that note, um, being the only, I mean, nobody in my family, or at least immediate family are physicians or anything or, um, have been going to like graduate school so yeah. I've been like the family doctor kind of, you know, people like my mom and just community people. They reached out to me on Facebook yeah. and messaged me and asked me, hey, like I have this symptoms or this or uh, where can I get COVID tested or this and that and all this information. Because, you know, I, it's on it's on Facebook that I'm in medical school yeah. and stuff. And, and they always reach out to me with questions and I'm happy to answer, you know, um, and <laughs> <laughs> I tell them to take advantage now that I don't have to have like some kind of license and but yeah so I've been kind of like the the I mean I'm not the community doctor but just with my own community yeah. my family a church people ask me stuff yep. about uh, COVID and things so I've been trying to inform them and try to be a good um, good example and and just tell people. Um, the, the information that they need to hear because there's a lot of there's a lot of misinformation yeah and, especially for everybody hispanic. it seems like yeah not, not but, specific but especially in the hispanic community yeah. and especially all the information that's coming in to them it's in english it's from non-hispanic people that are telling them what they should do they shouldn't do and we have we have our own traditions right we have our caldito de pollo we have our vicks <laughs> the vicks vape yeah but you know what i'm saying like we have yeah. our own things. We have our, my you know, my mom gargles vodka sometimes because she says that kills COVID. And, you know, yeah. Um, she makes she does some vodka gargles, and and whether she's right or not, um, I mean, it works for her sometimes, you know. And I'm not who am I to tell her that she's wrong if she's done it for years? And as she as she would say, you know, I kept you alive all this long, and now you come in after you're in med school, you know, like tell me how to how to keep you healthy and yeah because i'm studying but she's like nope you don't know what you're talking about yeah yeah no that that's interesting well and um you know it's it's interesting because i think our community the hispanic community the undocumented the mexican community i think we need more people like you uh not just in the medical field but in all fields right bringing the reality of the situation and presenting it in a way that's easily digestible I mean, because the reality is, you know, being in the Mexican communities in, in Utah, it's all like everybody seems to know each other first off. Like you can say, hey, do you know so-and-so? Somebody knows each other. Uh, so first off, it's a very small, tight-knit community, even though there's like thousands of Mexicans there. Uh, Hispanics as well, too. But I think what's even more important than that is just providing that voice, that representation. Like, hey, are the undocumented community in Utah is still pretty big. Um, not in comparison to like a place like Texas or Chicago or California, but it's still relatively kind of 
a big deal for a lot of families. And I know for my family, particularly for, for those who are still undocumented, accessing healthcare is not easy. You know, there's they're, they're pretty much stuck. If they don't have insurance, first off, and most undocumented people don't, uh, they have to go to the health clinics, right? The free ones, the community ones, where people are donating their time, donating their, their, their money, their services. And sometimes the quality of service that you get in these types of places isn't ideal. Uh, and so you'll get people who, who would prefer to not go to a clinic, not go get seen for something like, you know, COVID because they're afraid or they're, they just don't know enough about it to be able to go and see a professional. So I think what you're trying to do, even if it's just within your small community, uh, speaks to kind of what we need more of. We need more representation of, you know, of overcoming the undocumented experience to become something bigger than, you know, just a, a person that, you know, is a janitor or, a, you know, a, an essential worker, to just put it more broadly. So the question that I wanted to kind of present to you just to kind of close up uh, today's podcast is what recommendations or suggestions do you have for other dreamers or DACA recipients who aspire to become doctors or, you know, go into the medical field? One of the advices that my mom always gave me was you're always going to have a short no if you don't fight for it yeah. you're going to fight you have to fight for the yes and wherever every single turn every single time i you know in this road I, I get a lot of no's and i just have to keep asking until the, the yes happens and uh, for me i'm my faith is kind of a, plays a big part in my life so right. uh, i feel like i have a purpose in life and and that helps. That's a lot of the reason why I'm where I am, just because I, I feel like I get that extra help from from other sources, not just yeah. the things that I see. But that's just that's me. But definitely, if you are pursuing this, find your purpose. Whether you know whatever, there's many ways to find your purpose. It doesn't have to be uh, religious. But I think that just realizing that you'll get the no. Look for the yes always and stay grounded and keep it real just because our path is definitely different than our peers in the medical community, um, especially in the medical field, especially in medical school. A lot of my classmates come from um, doctor homes, you know, their yeah. parents were physicians, both of them. Affluent backgrounds. What's that? Uh, the affluent background. Yeah, and honestly, um, you are moving – uh, up, you're 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 moving up in a socioeconomic ladder when you when you go into medical school at least or any other professional school or graduate school, and that is really difficult. That is very difficult to get out of that um, whatever status you were before. And so, but don't, not let that get to your head. Um, you know, we're all still brothers and sisters, however you want to, however you want to say, human beings are all, you know, we're yeah. all just different opportunities in life. And I believe the only reason, if you are pursuing a medical career, uh, the only reason why you're giving the opportunity is to be able to help others. Um, and you will get comp life will, you know, you'll be compensated appropriately. Uh, medical professionals, you'll have a job. You'll, you'll, uh, you'll make money. Um, at least, at least to you know, to be able to provide for your family. But but um, I had I had a great advice by um, a 
physician, psychiatrist, when I was doing that rotation, and he said, just do it for the people. And he was not, like, Hispanic or anything, but he, he just – it's one of those few people in life that you can just tell that they love what they do and they're in there. Mm-hmm. And it sounds, it sounds weird, but not everybody that's in medical school or not everybody that's a physician or anything are doing are, – are in there for – the people or the career they're a lot of times are in there for the money they're you know or the, the yeah. for the career but not necessarily for you know to help or it's a good career you know and uh i there's a show i used to watch and there are artists and there are painters um there's people that ha- you know they they paint paintings but they're not necessarily artists um it's a little different so find that extra inspiration that extra extra push to to keep you going and, and and always go for the yes. You'll get a lot of no's. So just keep asking. Just keep keep knocking on doors. Yeah. Until that one opens for you. So. Well, I, I like what you said. Always go for the yes, right? Because uh, there could be you could be rejected nine hundred and ninety nine times, but it's that one thousand, that one yes that opens, that changes your future. And so I think that's a, a great way to kind of end today's podcast. Uh, Joaquin, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule with school, work, a family, your wife. Like, thank you for making time to kind of just share your story here on the Dreamer Diary podcast. This, uh, again, due to the nature of this podcast, where you know we're talking about sensitive issues, uh, the DACA experience. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to, you know, say, hey, you could connect with Joaquin for X, Y, Z. But should you want to learn a little bit more, feel free to email the dreamerdiary21 at gmail.com uh, email that I've provided previously. And um, if you have any questions, you know, I can connect you with Joaquin in that way. But again, thank you so much, Joaquin, for joining us today. And uh, maybe we'll have to join you or we'll ask you to join us again with your wife and, and kind of get her story because I think – uh, there's a lot of interesting anecdotes and experience with this whole COVID situation that I think a lot of people would find interesting, especially if they themselves are kind of like in your situation where, you know, they do have an international spouse and they're DACA themselves and they too went through that experience. And so maybe your perspective could help them overcome something. So again, we'll kind of cross that bridge when we get there. But Joaquin, thank you so much for joining us today, man. And uh, we'll catch you on the next one.